Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for another Church at Home experience. My name is Roger. I'm the executive pastor here at Inspire Church, and I am so thrilled to see you today. One thing that you may not know about me is I absolutely love going to the movie theaters. I don't know, there's something about sitting and watching a movie in the theater, the big screen, the surround sound, being able to get some snacks and a drink and sit back on those reclining chairs. I have always loved the theater ever since I was a kid. In fact, I remember going to the theaters when I was a teenager with one of my friends and we we're watching a movie and the movie was almost over and my friend leaned over and said, hey bro, there's another movie that we really wanna see and it starts in 10 minutes. When this is done, we should run over there and sneak into the other movie theater. Well, I said yes. And so he and I snuck into the second movie and I gotta tell you, I loved watching this second movie. Well. The first 15 minutes of it anyway, because after that, sure enough, we got caught. One of the employees came up, asked to see our ticket. Of course, we did not have it. And so we were kicked out of the movie theater. And this is sort of a very simplified, very surface level illustration of what the Israelites went through when they were exiled. They disobeyed God for generations. And so what we we read in the book of Daniel is that God allowed Babylon to come in to conquer them and his people were exiled out of their land and some of them were actually brought in to Babylon. Now, what's fascinating about this exile theme is that this narrative is found throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. What the Bible says is that it's not just Daniel or Daniel's people that were exiled, but all of humanity was exiled from the fall, exiled out of the garden because of sin. And so exile really goes from being um, a, a, a location to really being a mode of existence in a broken world. And in fact, Babylon goes from being a physical city to really a symbol of how the systems and the structure of the world works. And so what the Bible says is that not only is Daniel and his family and the Israelites were they exiled, but all of humanity is exiled. And that this is an experience that we all are going through right now. That's why John the Baptist, when he came on the scene, it was really interesting because to John the Baptist's perspective, uh, Babylon was done with half uh, uh, thousands of years ago. And yet what we see is he is in the desert and he is still preaching and quoting scripture and Psalms um, about how the people are still in Babylon and we are still exiled. And what he was trying to say is what the Bible tries to say, which is there that, that we are exiled and that there is 
a new home that will one day be restored. There is a world that God is going to redeem and we will come out of this current Babylon into our true home. So the question is, okay, while we are in exile, how are we supposed to live in this society that is antithetical to our very beliefs while still holding on to and not compromising our faith? Well, what better person to press that question onto than the people that we see in the book of Daniel who actually lived in Babylon? So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up on Daniel chapter 3, and we are going to see how these three people named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was able to live in a culture and in society, thrive in that culture, while still holding on to their faith. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all the officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king! You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not, on, not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Thank you so much, Becca. For those of you who do not know, that was my wife. You are so beautiful. I love you. Actually, what you may not know is Becca and I met at university. Now, I actually remember the very first day in my theology class at university. And I kind of want to bring you into that scene for just a minute because day one, we hit the ground running. And I remember our professor beginning to talk about something called a false dichotomy. Now, I know I just said that word and probably some of you are like, hey, it is too early in the morning for that. 
take a couple sips of coffee. I'm going to explain what my professor explained to me. A false dichotomy, or in other words, a false dilemma, is where somebody shows you a certain amount of options. They say something like, well, you can either choose option A or you can choose option B. And the reason why that it's called a false dilemma is because in certain situations when there seems to be only choice A or choice B, there's actually a third choice that one can take, but that the person did not present. Now, this is something that society does to us all the time. Our culture does this all the time. They say, you can either do this or you can do that. And they give you these sort of two options and they put you in a dilemma. But the dilemma, it's false. It's fake because there is a third way that you can take. And it's not just our society that does this to us, but actually all societies have done this from generation to generation. And even in the days of Daniel and what we see here in Daniel chapter 3, let me just explain. See, Babylon, 600 years before Christ, if you remember uh, from the previous messages, they took the professional class, if you will, and made them live in Babylon. Now, why would they do that? Well, if you recall, that was the strategy. The strategy was subjugation through assimilation. The, the idea is this, is that these other countries that were resisting the rule of Babylon, um, what would you do to defeat them? Well, what Babylon did was they said, you take the professional class and you make sure that they grew up in the culture of Babylon and in a generation or two, they will assimilate, right? They will adapt the values and the standards. They will lose their own distinct culture and beliefs um, and values, and then they will stop resisting the claims of the empire. Um, and, and so what Babylon did was Babylon said, listen, you have two choices. You could rebel, you could uh, revolt, but you'll be destroyed, or you could assimilate and you will survive. Those were the two options. But see, that is a false dichotomy because what we have learned in the book of Daniel so far is there's actually a third way, this unique third way that is neither revolution or assimilation. It's neither withdraw or compromise. And in Daniel chapter three, what we are going to learn here are actually three points that come from this chapter. Point number one is the pressure. Point number two is the precision. And point number three is the promise. So I remember reading a book a long time ago from D.A. Carson, and he used these three points, and I remember jotting them down in notes that I had from years ago, um, and I wish I would have done a better job at note-taking, because I would have loved to be able to see what else he said, but unfortunately, that's all that I wrote. But it still brings about some amazing points here that as we go through chapter three, I think you and I are going to be motivated, challenged to be able to see what is this 
third way. The pressure, the precision, and the promise. Let's start with number one, the pressure of pluralism. We're going to start at the very top of the story. And here Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image that I have set up? See, Pastor Phil has done an amazing job at mining the first two chapters of Daniel for us. And where we ended last Sunday was Nebuchadnezzar. He had this dream of a large statue. Maybe you remember. And if you recall, this statue was made up of different types of material. And basically what the dream was about was telling God telling Nebuchadnezzar, listen, you are going to have an amazing kingdom. You are going to be mighty. You are going to be awesome, but you will also be finite. It, that its legacy, Nebuchadnezzar, will not last forever. And, and that this statue that was made of different materials represented different kingdoms that would eventually come along. But basically at the end of the dream, God was saying that at the end of all of these kingdoms, none of them are going to be infinite. None of them are going to last forever. But they will all crumble and God's kingdom will remain. God's kingdom kingdom will prevail. And now we're in chapter three, and it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar is standing against God. Nebuchadnezzar builds this statue, this golden image, and notice he didn't have it made of different materials. He only had it made of one material. And it was like he was making a declaration in direct defiance against God, saying, no, 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 his kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, his legacy um, will be infinite. His reach will know no bounds. That is almost the feeling, the sense that you get when you look at this statue that Nebuchadnezzar erected. Now, before we begin to judge Nebuchadnezzar, before we begin to look at the speck in Nebuchadnezzar's eye, we need to take a look at the log in our own eye because he's not the only one to put up false images and command people to bow down to them. We are guilty for putting up false images as well. Every day we want to put up an image of who we want people to think we are and we demand that they worship that image. We demand that that is the image that they bow down to. We try to keep face and we do it through photos and filters and social media, right? And we are constantly putting up an image of ourselves that we want people to see. I find it interesting that Nebuchadnezzar, he could have built a huge platform just as tall, stood on top of it and demanded everyone to bow down to him. But in Instead, he said, I want you to bow down to this image that I have placed in front of you. We quick, whenever we read these stories, friends, we are quick to try to look at the heroes, aren't we? To try to see how is it that we can relate to the heroes? How are we like the heroes of the story? But I want to challenge you for a minute to stop and begin to ask yourself, wait a minute, how are we like Nebuchadnezzar? Because we are actually like him in more ways than you think. So before we investigate the image that we find in scripture, 
I wonder if we should try to investigate the false image that we also put in front of others. With that being said, it is interesting, this statue that we see here. What Nebuchadnezzar, what he did was he had this statue erected and he wanted every person to come around and worship it. And you have to understand, you have to remember and know that this was a huge event, right? That this was an splendid display of opulence and he spared no expense. He wanted to make sure that this was a hot event. He wanted to make sure everybody was there from every tribe and every nation and every language. He wanted to make sure that the who's who's were there. So he had the officers and the generals, the magistrates, the judges from both provinces of Syria and Palestine there. And then he also wanted music. And, and again, he didn't spare any expense. This is this would be like, you know, having DJ Khaled on the ones and the twos. Everybody was there. The music was hot and going. And he expected everyone to bow down and worship this idol. And what's interesting about this image of gold is that if you read the text carefully, you realize that it doesn't just represent him, but it actually represents his gods. Not just one God, but it represents all gods, the values and the beliefs and essentially the culture of Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar knows that this is a multinational, multi-ethnic city. In other words, he recognizes that Babylon is a pluralistic city. There are people there from many lands. There are people there that have different religions. And they all have different gods. And what he is saying, and listen carefully, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is he's saying, I'm not telling you to worship my gods, the Babylonian gods, instead of your God. No, no, no. What he was telling them was, I want you to worship the Babylonian gods in addition, in addition. He's saying, listen, you can worship whatever gods you want to, but in public, you bow down to the image. See, when you say, oh, you can worship your gods, as long as you don't say your gods are the only God. You can worship your God as long as you also acknowledge our gods at the same time. Now, of course, in Babylonian culture, what that meant was that you had to privatize your faith. In private, you could worship the God of Israel, but in public, you had to be like everybody else. The values, the way you lived, had to be like everyone else lived. And what's fascinating is all great pluralistic societies, from Babylon to Rome to America, do the same thing. The pressure is the same. See, what all pluralistic societies say is this. You can privately worship the way you want, but in public culture, you have to be like everybody else. Don't think that your religion has some sort of exclusive claims to truth. You can be religious in private if that helps you, but in public, you cannot be. You have to worship, accept everybody else's way. 
That's how all pluralistic societies work. And what's fascinating, particularly here in America, is America says, listen, I don't want to be a Christian because Christianity is filled with hypocrites. They are filled with people that will be one way in public and another way in private. And yet what's ironic is that same society, when you do take your private Christianity and make it public, they say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. No, 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 you can't be the same person in public that you are in private. And so they make this ironic stance that actually folds in on itself. And so as we are living in a pluralistic society that says, hey, in order for you to live here, you have to privatize your faith. What do we as Christians do? Now, before I answer that, you might be thinking, well, I don't know, Pastor Roger, if I do that. Let me give you some great examples of how you privatize your faith but then you don't take that faith and make it public. You, you do stuff on Sundays, but you don't let that go into your Mondays and your Tuesdays and your Wednesdays. For, for instance, if you're a Christian and maybe you're in the tech industry or retail or the business world today and you have competitors, right? And those competitors want to make it to the top, right? Because the bottom line is about what is it that you're producing. And so those competitors, maybe they aren't Christian and so their integrity doesn't matter as much. They will cheat a little, cut corners, be ruthless, barely legal. Maybe they'll lie a little bit. And so you too will do the same in order to keep up or maybe to even get on top of these competitors or to do better at your job or to get that promotion or to get in with the boss or whatever the situation is. You may also cheat a little and cut some corners and maybe tell some lies or be ruthless. If so, then you have succumbed to the pressure. You are bowing to the image. You, you say you're a Christian privately, right? You say, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe all the things of Christianity teaches about attitudes and relationships, etc. But how you're actually living in the world, you're just like everyone else. You've bowed. You've bowed. Let me give you one more example. Uh, there is a group of sociologists that came out with a massive study at Oxford University. Um, and it, the study was called Premarital Sex in America. And what they did was they took a group of men between the ages of 18 and 23, and they, they actually got two groups. They wanted to make sure they had the same amount of men in both groups. And one group of men was raised in a society or in a culture, maybe a home culture, where having sex outside of marriage was not morally wrong. There was nothing wrong with it. Then they had a second group um, of men that was between the ages of 18 and 23 who was raised in a culture where sex outside of marriage was wrong. So one group it wasn't wrong and one group it was. And what they found out when they began to see, well, how many men had sex outside of marriage between the two groups, there was only a 1% difference. Wow. Now, the sociologists say it's pretty simple. They say, this is what happened. Your church tells you something about sex and your culture tells you something about sex and you believe what the culture tells you. In other words, you say, well, you know, I, I'm a, I believe in Christianity. I believe, you know, all the things that Christianity says in private. 
But in public, you're going to live like everybody else. Well, you have succumbed to the pressure. You are bowing to the image. All pluralistic societies put this type of pressure pressure on us in order to assimilate us to public culture by privatizing our faith. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had none of it. They had none of it. You say, well, uh, maybe they were, you know, different. Maybe they were weird. Maybe, maybe they weren't in society. But, but actually, if you've read chapters one and two before this, you'll actually know that, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they were not sort of this tiny little spiritual enclave withdrawn from the world, right? But, but Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, along with Daniel, were actually deeply involved in the culture of Babylon, that they received a Babylonian education. They are all working in public service. They are working in the government. They are deeply involved and engaged. They are very much a part of the city of Babylon, they're doing what Jeremiah 29 said that we should do as exiles. They should love the city, pray for the city, and work for the prosperity of the city, and engage themselves in the culture and the economic activities of the city. But when asked to privatize their faith, they say no. They draw the line, and they say we don't care what the consequences are. That is something we cannot do. So I just want to ask you a question. If you're a Christian and you are living here in the West, then you are under the same pressure. And here's what's crazy. If you heard what I said and you say, actually, Pastor Roger, I don't feel that pressure, then that means you've given into it. That means you've given into it. If you're never resisting the pressure, then that means you are giving, you have given in and you have bowed your knee. Wow. Now, as we continue to work our way through the text, not only do we see the pressure they face, but number two, ready? The precision of true faith. Number two, write it down, the precision of, two, of true faith. Now, what do I mean by precision? Well, as you see, Nebuchadnezzar is furious that they're not bowing down to the image. And so what do they say? Well, look at this. Go to verse 17 and 18. And it's one of the most uh, two wonderful declarations in the Bible. They look at Nebuchadnezzar and they say, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, if we're thrown into the burning furnace, the God that we serve is able to save us from it. But even if he does not, I want you to know, O oh king, that we still will not bow down to that image. We will never worship your gods. The first thing I want you to notice is this, is that in chapter 3, this is the first time that their God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, the God that you and I serve, this is the first time that he's mentioned in this chapter. If you didn't know any better, you might say, uh, well, wait a minute, where was God in the first part of the chapter? Where, where was he? Was he not around? Well, if you've been paying attention to this series at all, I hope by now you have ingrained in your heart what Daniel is stating time and time again throughout this book, that God is where he always has been. 
Providence says that God works behind the scenes. I know sometimes you wish that God would be front and center, center stage, taking up the spotlight, making his presence known all the time to everyone. But it's interesting because some people have lived as though God is not there. Others live and say, yeah, he's there, but he does not care. And yet there are others who say, actually, he's there and he cares, but he is not active. I am praying and I don't see anything. I'm not seeing the active hand of God in the world or in my life. But you need to understand that providence says not only is God, is God working, but everything works for God. Providence says that, yes, God is currently working, but also everything works for God. The good and the bad work for God. The right and the wrong work for God. The justice and the injustice work for God. Everything, everything is on God's payroll. So when you look at our political climate, it doesn't matter who ran or who's running or who's going to run because we serve a God who is in control. He never had to run on a campaign. He didn't have to make side deals. He never had to ask somebody to put a sign in their front yard. You have to know that the God that we serve, he was never voted in and he will never be voted out. You need to understand that we serve a God that is always present. And just because you cannot always see him does not mean he is not there. Now watch how remarkable this is. They make this statement and they say to Nebuchadnezzar, we believe our God is able to save us. We believe he can save us. But they don't just stop there. They actually say our God will save us. But if he does not, then we will still not bow down. In other words, if he doesn't, he is still God anyway. And we will not bow down to your God's. Albert Barnes, an Old Testament commentator, said this. He said this about this passage. He said, what you see here is you are seeing three people that love God for God and not for what God can give. See, I know a lot of people who they will serve God. They'll follow Jesus as long as Jesus can keep them out of the fire. They will follow Jesus everywhere, but the minute a fiery furnace appears in their life, they're out. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've talked to people who've said, yeah, listen, I've trusted God. I've lived a good life. And then I ask him for something really important. These are important things that I asked him for. And, and it didn't happen. I trusted God. I really trusted God. But he didn't come through for me. Well, not exactly. You, you didn't quite trust God, did you? Right? Because actually what you did was you had God balled up with your agenda. The real hope the real thing that mattered to you, the thing that you really, really were trusting in was your agenda, right? You thought, well, if I obey God and if I pray to God, then God will give me my agenda. He'll give me a problem-free, pain-free life. And when you didn't get a problem-free, pain-free life, you said, well, I guess I can't trust God anymore. But you weren't really trusting God to begin with. You were trusting God plus something else. 
You were trusting God plus this or plus that. But what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying here is saying, we trust God, period. Not God plus plus. We obey him because he's worth it. We trust him and we love him and we serve him, not for what we're going to get out of it, but because he is lovely and beautiful and true. They are precisely believing in God, not God plus this plus that. And as a result, they can handle anything that comes their way. And as a result, they can have a type of faith that says, listen, I believe God can do this. I know God can. But even if he doesn't see when you really trust God, when you really love him, you'll have an even if kind of faith, a kind of faith that says, listen, I believe God can heal me. But even if he doesn't, I believe God can restore my kids back to him. But even if he does not, I believe God can provide a job for me or I believe that anything can happen, but even if he doesn't, we need to have more people that have an even if kind of faith. I'll I'll follow God when days are good, but even if they're not good, I'll follow God when I feel happy, but even when I don't feel happy, I'll follow God when I'm filled with joy, but even when I'm not filled with joy, I'll follow God when I'm surrounded by love and accolades, but even when I'm not followed, surrounded by love and accolades, I will serve a God even if Because he's still God. He's still God. Why? Why? Why Why can they say this? Well, they can say this because of the promise. The pressure, the precision, and now the promise. I remember a pastor, and I forget who said this, but he said this. He said, yes, as a believer... God can rescue you from death, but he will always rescue you through death. So what happens? What promise? Well, they get thrown into the furnace. And while they're in the furnace, the furnace is, is, is turned up so hot that even when Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers go to throw them in, the soldiers die from the heat And Nebuchadnezzar is obviously at a safe distance and he's looking into the furnace and and he says, wait a minute, I thought we threw three people in, but there's a fourth person. And Nebuchadnezzar actually does a pretty good job at nailing who this is because he uses a word there, Elohim, which means the son of God. The son of God. He, he doesn't just call him the sons, the son of the gods, but later in verse 28, he actually refers to him again and he says, Praise be to the God of Shagrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angels. Now, now, now what is this? Who, who is this fourth person? Well, what we see is that this fourth person is God in visible form. It's God in manifestation. It's a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ himself in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what's most fascinating about this story is Nebuchadnezzar ends up calling, calling Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, come here. You guys in the furnace, come out here. And when those that were in the furnace came out, if you notice, only three walked out while one stayed in. Only three walked out 
while one stayed in. You say, well, what does that mean to me, Roger? Well, it means at least two things. Number one, the fiery furnace is a foreshadow pointing to an ultimate furnace, the cross of Christ. And Christ stayed in the furnace so you and I wouldn't have to. See, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the furnace, God stayed in so they wouldn't have to. And when they came out, the Bible says that they didn't even smell of smoke. You see, because when God saves you from sin, he doesn't just save you and forgive you, but he covers you in his righteousness. So that way you are without spot or wrinkle. You don't smell like smoke. You don't look like you were in a fire. He saves you, but he also covers you in his righteousness. This is the gospel. What you're seeing here in the fiery furnace is the gospel. The gospel is that you and I, because we don't love God with all our hearts, souls, and strength, because we don't love our neighbors like we love ourselves, then we deserve to be cast away. We deserve to be in the fiery furnace. But the gospel says, while we are faithless, he is faithful. Jesus Christ came to earth on the cross and experienced the wrath that we deserved. In other words, he was thrown into the ultimate furnace. That's how we're saved. The second thing it means is this. Fire in the Bible represents many different things, but one of the things it represents are trials and difficulties and pain and suffering that you go through here on earth. In other words, yes, Jesus faced the ultimate furnace, and yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced the physical furnace, but we too face these small furnaces. Paul calls them light afflictions. These smaller furnaces. And I don't know what your smaller furnace is. Maybe your smaller furnace is cancer or past abuse or the aftermath of a divorce. Maybe it's the guilt of an abortion or the agony of having to watch your child die. Or maybe it's the loss of a job or a torn family or severe social disorder or some sort of mental health. I don't know what your smaller furnace is, but write this down. You will fill Jesus Christ walking with you in your furnace to the degree that you know that Jesus Christ was thrown in the ultimate furnace for you. If you remember that Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you, then you'll fill him in these smaller furnaces with you. And what's fascinating is at the very end of the entire passage, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar speaks prophetically more than he knows. And he says this, he says, no God can save in this way. No God can save in this way. Before the Mandalorian ever coined the phrase, King Nebuchadnezzar ended up confessing, this is the way. Daniel chapter demonstrates how we are to seek God's kingdom and the world's well-being without compromising our faith in the process. We don't succumb to the pressure. We have to remember that. We have to remember that we are precise in the truth of our faith and that we hold on and look at the promise in Christ's faithfulness because he took on the ultimate 
furnace. Wow. Let's pray. Lord God, I just pray, Heavenly Father, that as we are looking at the society that we live in, a society that tells us, listen, all you have to do is just privatize your faith. Don't make it public. You can live however way you want to behind closed doors when nobody's looking, believe whatever you want, but don't bring that Jesus stuff here. God, I pray that you will forgive us, that we will repent, and Heavenly Father, that we will be able to have a type of faith that, yes, allows us to live in society, pray for society, engage society, even pray for the welfare of society and be a part of this culture that we can live in Babylon but not look like Babylon. And Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that as we see this bold statement that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made about uh, believing, Lord, that you can save them from the fire, but even if you didn't, they still would not bow down and worship the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. And help us, Lord, to be able to have the same kind of faith because we can look back at the cross and the empty tomb and know, God, that your promises are always kept, that you are always faithful even when we're faithless. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to be true Christians in a culture that is constantly pressuring us to live otherwise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash inspirechurches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.